Well, you know, as we get into the study this morning, we're leading up to, I would say, one of the two most important days of the year, Christmas and Resurrection Day. I don't like using the term Easter. It's really a pagan term. The birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And we know that the age-old argument, or at least in modern times, well, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Well, 99.9% true. But the date is not really the issue. It's the importance of celebrating the birth of the Son of God. The incarnation, it's called, where God comes into this world in human form. And that's what we celebrate. And of course, we know that a lot of it's gotten lost in the shuffle of all the secularization and, uh, and then we see any effort now to put forth the true meaning, like setting up a public nativity or what have you. There's backlash, you know, people arguing, complaining, making them take down the nativities and so forth. And so um, the enemy's done a pretty good job of downplaying the real meaning of Christmas. That's why it's all the more incumbent upon us as believers to uphold it, Right? to not allow that to happen. And the great thing about it is, regardless of what day he was actually born on, there's one day out of the year where the whole world's attention is drawn to this historic event, and I think that's great. When you watch the TV Christmas Eve, you will see celebrations all around the world, in every country, every culture, every society, whether people believe in him or not. Their attention is drawn to him on that day. And you could arguably say the same thing about Resurrection Day. So these are opportunities that we have to really get the attention of people who the rest of the year don't really pay any attention. But what I want to talk about this morning is some of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ and also why he had to come and what he accomplished. So, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time of year. And we pray that you, Lord God, and you, Lord Jesus, would not get lost in the shuffle. And you would help us as your people, as your children, to make sure that those around us are reminded of what this celebration is really all about. And we do thank you, God, that people all over the world are pretty much almost forced to pay attention to the birth of Christ. It's the only religious celebration, if you will, that draws the attention of the entire world, every ethnicity, every culture, every society, every nation. We thank you for that, and we pray, Lord, that you would make yourself known once again this year, throughout this holiday season, but especially coming up next week, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. And we ask you to bless this time of Bible study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, numerous scholars, theologians, preachers, teachers have pointed out how amazing it is that God would uh, choose to save this world through a baby, if you will, because that's how Jesus started out, right? Right? If you were God and you wanted to 
free mankind from the curse. And we're going to talk about that this morning. That's why Jesus came, to free us from the curse. The curse of sin and death. If you were God and you wanted to free mankind from the curse, who would you send? We know of some famous names in the Bible. The angel Gabriel, the archangel Michael. There's other great angels that we don't necessarily know by name. Perhaps God could have come down himself, which in essence he did. But Exodus 33:20, God said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So that would prohibit God the Father from appearing in person. That will happen later on after you and I have been perfected. Then we will see him. So God came up with a plan, and that was to send himself in human form as the baby Jesus who would grow up to be the Savior of the world. But we look back in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. For unto us a child is born with a big C, because this child is the Son of God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son, big S, is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Several things that this verse tells us. Of course, we have the advantage of looking back now, hindsight, but when this prophecy was written by the prophet Isaiah, it was a foretelling of a future event. First of all, it tells us the Messiah will come into this world as a baby who was born a member of the human race. Then it tells us to us a son is given. Given. It would be a male child. This is back when we had two genders. We still have two genders, by the way. But he will be given. He will be God's gift to us. A child is born, a son is given. And then it tells us the government will be on his shoulders. So this tells us that ultimately he will be the ruler of this world. We know that hasn't taken place yet. He came the first time to become the ruler of our hearts and our minds for all those who would welcome him in. He already rules and reigns in the hearts of his people, but the time is coming. And like so many of the Old Testament prophecies, there's an intermingling of the first coming and the second coming. The government will be on his shoulders, and I personally can't wait for that to happen. Because the shoulders upon which the government is currently resting are not qualified to have it resting on them. Not in this nation nor any other nation. But Isaiah also gives us some important characteristics here regarding this child, this son, this gift. And obviously the fact that the government will be upon his shoulder, tells us that this child, this baby, will grow up to be the ruler of the world. But here's the characteristics. Number one, his name shall be called Wonderful. And this word wonderful here 
in the Hebrew has the connotation of supernatural. His name shall be, he will be called supernatural. Judges 13, 18. And by the way, in the Old Testament, when we read about the angel of the Lord, you will notice in most Bible translations, the A over angel is capitalized. Not an angel. There are times where we read about an angel from the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We call it a Christophany or a theophany. It's, an, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Because, in case you didn't know this, Jesus has been around just as long as the Father has. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. So Jesus didn't suddenly come into existence when he was born into this world. He coexisted and pre-existed with God the Father throughout eternity. So the angel of the Lord is talking here with Manoah, the father of Samson. And he says to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So this first characteristic his name will be called Wonderful, so he's supernatural, he's not of this world. Secondly, Counselor, so many people today are seeking out counselors, therapists, and so forth, and paying a lot of money for it, but the best counselor of all doesn't charge. The one who gives guidance, wisdom, comfort, and direction. Now, there's, there's some good counselors out there. My good friend Brian Davis is one of them, but they're still just men and women. They're imperfect human beings. If you want the best counselor, then you go to Jesus. And he told the disciples he was going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to be our comforter, to be our counselor, to be our guide. But how often do we really take advantage of that? He's the supernatural counselor. So this phrase refers to Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy about Jesus as the supernatural counselor. When all earthly wisdom and human counsel fails us, which it will, we have a supernatural counselor to help us. In fact, Jesus, um, well, he, he quotes from Isaiah, but here in Isaiah 11, 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And, and Jesus, over in Luke 4.18, he gets up in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and begins to read from the book of Isaiah. And he tells the people as he's reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he is confirming to the people there, that he indeed is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then he gets up and reads from Isaiah 62, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The, th the second quality or characteristic that we see here, or the third rather, I got my numbers mixed up on here, mighty God. And again, there's the age-old debate. Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? Then you haven't really studied the Bible. 
Because the Bible clearly says that the Messiah will not only be the Son of God, he will be God in the flesh, mighty God. It's a term that's applied to Yahweh in Deuteronomy 10, 17, Isaiah 20, Isaiah 10, 21, Jeremiah 32, 18. And it predicts the ultimate victory of the Messiah over evil, mighty God, the victorious one. And so as a man, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. As the mighty God, he will return to the earth to rule over it with a rod of iron. Revelation 12, 5, she, in this case, not Mary, but Israel. In the book of Revelation, she, Israel, bore a male child or brought forth a male child who was to rule how many nations? All nations. You got to love that. With a rod of iron, no messing around. One of the greatest problems we have in our world today is we have, we've moved into what the Bible has predicted, an age and a time and an era of lawlessness. And everybody's suffering because of it. Nobody seems to have the intelligence, the rationality, the common sense, the logic to recognize it and to deal with it. But guess who does? God. And Jesus is going to set things right when he returns. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, <coughs> which really isn't a problem as long as you're willing to follow the rules, right? There's actually freedom in that. There's freedom in that. One of the things that really causes kids to go into a tailspin is when there are no rules, there are no guidelines, and they get confused. And they are carried away by their own immaturity, their own emotions, their own feelings, because nobody's giving them any guidance. The counselor, the one who's going to rule over all the nations, will set things right. So this, is, this part of the prophecy, in a sense, is futuristic. This is second coming. But then he's also identified here, mighty God, fourthly, everlasting father literally means the father of eternity the messiah is eternally a father to his people guarding supplying and caring for their needs fourthly or fifthly rather prince of peace jesus is the very source of peace for all mankind and sadly so many never turn to him to seek the peace that only he can give his peace is an eternal peace which transcends all situations and circumstances. He promises in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, he tells his disciples. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. What The world's peace is usually temporary and it's unreliable. His peace is eternal and reliable, never failing, never faltering. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And yet we do sometimes, don't we? We let our hearts be troubled. We allow ourselves to become afraid. And the devil wants you to believe that you don't have a choice, that you're a victim of circumstances. It's beyond your control, and that's not true. In Christ, God gives us the ability to choose to receive his peace, to embrace his peace. 
We're promised in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, if we bring everything to him in prayer uh, and supplication with thanksgiving, that he will give us that peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and our minds. That's where the battle is won or lost. You know that? It's in our hearts. It's in our minds where the enemy is able to, to uh, convince us that we should be anxious, we should be afraid. But Jesus promises a peace to us that will enable us to not be afraid. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let not. Don't allow it. Make the choice to embrace that peace that Christ has promised us. And then one day, even though now on this planet at this time, only those who are truly children of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're the only ones who can truly know the peace at that level. But the time is coming when the whole world will experience it as well. Again in Isaiah 2.4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall bear their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so when the Prince of Peace comes to rule and reign over this planet, what do we see all around us right now? And Jesus predicted it. Matthew 24, there will be wars and rumors of wars. It's just pretty much constant now, isn't it? Every time you turn around, there's a rumor an actual war going on or a rumor of a war. And Jesus said that's the kind of turmoil that our planet would be in just prior to his return. But when he comes back, the whole world is going to be enveloped in that peace. Sadly, in the midst of all this, this baby boy, the wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, would one day have to die a horrible death that he did not deserve. Why? Because of the curse. And for that, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We know the story. God instructed Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for that one tree, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So which tree did they want to eat from? <laughs> They did, they fell, they fell into sin. And so now it, it's incumbent upon God to punish them. And that's where the curse comes in. So first of all, God speaks of the curse upon the serpent who deceived Eve. Whom, as we know, was actually Satan or Lucifer. He says, I will put enmity, Genesis 3.15, Enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, Satan, Lucifer, the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. The curse upon the serpent, again, it would appear that the serpent at that point in time was upright and could speak and was inhabited by Satan. But the curse upon the serpent was that he would ultimately be defeated by the offspring of the woman. Notice that between you and the woman, between your seed, Satan, and her seed, 
ultimately Mary. No mention of the man's offspring, and yet down through the Bible, genealogies are always traced through the man. But here it speaks of the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent. And that's a whole different subject we won't get into this morning. The seed of the serpent. The curse upon the serpent. In the short run, crawling upon the ground on his belly. But the real, real curse here is his defeat by the Messiah. The Messiah would bruise his head or crush his head, which is a fatal uh, act. Satan was defeated when Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He hasn't been assigned his place in the abyss yet, but he has been defeated by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the bruising of our Savior's heel was that he was crucified, but you can't keep a God-man down. And so he rose from the dead on the third day. Now, verse 16 of Genesis, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The NIV says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And so the curse upon the woman was extreme pain in childbearing. So apparently, had Adam and Eve not fallen into sin, birthing would have been a piece of cake. And then he tells her, another part of this curse, if you will, your desire shall be for your husband. What does that really mean? There's a number of ideas behind it. It could mean that the wife would have a deep attraction to her husband, perhaps to compensate for the sorrow of childbirth, or it may mean that her desire would be to rule over her husband because he says, your desire shall be for your husband, he will, but he will rule over you. So the tendency would be for Eve to blame Adam for the intense pain of childbirth because he did not properly direct her when she gave in to the serpent's beguilement. And how many of us have experienced, witnessed, or maybe some of you ladies have done this, in the midst of childbirth, oftentimes, especially in our day and age, back in the day, the husbands didn't go in. They were left in the lobby to smoke cigarettes. But in later times, the husbands are invited into the birthing room or the, wherever they are bringing forth the child, and the husband is there to coach, breathe, honey, breathe, and all that stuff, you know. But how often does the lady in the midst of extreme pain say things like, I hate you. Don't touch me. Right? And so... You can very easily see Eve blaming Adam for her travail in the pain of childbirth. And again, that could result in a lack of desire for intimacy. But it would be imperative for the Messiah to come that women would continue to give birth. Therefore, your desire shall be for your husband. But in addition blaming Adam for not protecting her from the serpent's deception, she would now want to call the shots. 
And God had created Adam and Eve to be co-regents over this planet, over this world, over the animal kingdom, animal, vegetable, mineral. They were to rule together as the king and queen of the planet, but they gave way to the serpent and lost that position. And so it really corrupted and defiled God's plan. And so your desires will be for your husband, however you want to interpret that, but he will rule over you. And so there would, that was the beginning, really, of the eternal struggle for dominance. And so we've seen it, the pendulum swing both ways. We've seen large periods of human history where you could, it'd be, it would be easy to make the argument that women were very oppressed and dominated and controlled. And now we've seen the pendulum swing the other way to where men have been emasculated and have, their place of leadership has been usurped and taken from them and will never have the proper balance again until Jesus comes back. But so we see all this, the curse, in full force. And it's dominated this planet for the last 6,000 years. And so... We hear outcries, protests, the latest being, of course, the uh, protest by the pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian group, cursing Israel, damning Israel uh, from the river to the sea, which basically means from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, wipe out Israel completely. And even those within our own government, our own leadership, are doing everything they can to turn us against each other, trying to divide us, across ethnic lines, racial lines, and so forth. That's just further manifestation of the curse and the turmoil that the human race was plunged into by the fall of the first man and the first woman. Again, pendulum swinging one end to the other, but man cannot fix it, only God can fix it. So now we get to Adam and his curse. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Now this does not mean that men should never listen to their wives. What it does mean is Adam failed in his responsibility to be the spiritual leader of his family. The curse upon the man is he's condemned to exhausting labor in order to make a living because of a curse on the ground. Adam worked before the fall, but whereas once it would have been in the shade of the Garden of Eden, just a little light pruning, enjoying, you know, now toiling in the hot fields, you know, whereas once they, Adam and Eve had the luxury feeding upon fruits and nuts and berries, avocados, so forth. Before the flood of Noah, man was a vegetarian. But then now he would have to go out into the fields, sow the wheat, the barley, the corn, and it would be wrought with weeds and thistles. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you what part of your yard grows the most prolifically? The weeds? 
right? You don't even have to water them or do anything. You don't have to, they just grow, the weeds. If you want a nice lawn, it takes a lot of work. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And again, even in this, there's a reminder here, the thorns and the thistles, speaking of Christ's crown of thorns that would be placed upon him. I love the way these things are all woven into the scriptures. Verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Even here with the sweat of his brow, the sweat of his face, we're reminded of Jesus. Luke twenty-two forty-four In the Garden of Eden, as he's praying, just prior to his arrest and crucifixion, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Some believe it literally was blood, that the blood vessels, because of the intense pressure that he was under, the stress, that the blood vessels in his forehead actually burst and it was blood. But whether it was literally blood or just symbolic, he was sweating profusely. Just like God told Adam, you'll have to earn your living now by the sweat of your face or your brow. To dust you shall return. The ultimate Worst part of the curse, the final and most devastating curse, was the curse of death. For God had created man to live forever. In fact, there in the midst of the garden was another tree they were not prohibited from eating of until they fell. And that was the tree of life, which we will see again in God's eternal kingdom. But God had to kick them out of the garden and put an angel there to guard it so that they would not eat of that tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. That was God's grace, protecting them from living forever in a fallen state. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. In other words, if you're living under the law, if you're not living under the grace of God, that free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, but as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, under the old law, the Old Testament, the old covenant, unless you could obey God's law 100%, which no human being can do, you're cursed. However, God loves his people. He loves his creation. He did not want us to remain under the curse. We spoke a moment ago about the, uh, um, the issue of pain and childbirth. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about this, the redemption of childbirth. Again, one of the, it's kind of these controversial passages. We'll try to make it make sense and take some of the discomfort out of it. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, which really means not to pastor. There are no, we know in the many churches today, they're now ordaining women to the ministry as pastors. There's no evidence in the New Testament that there were any female pastors. That doesn't mean women are inferior. It just means God has a different role and purpose for the two genders. <laughs> Not to pastor or to lead men, but certainly God allows them and 
wants them to teach other women, just like my wife teaches a women's Bible study, Debbie Moss teaches a women's Bible study, to teach other women, to teach the children, and to give testimony and so forth. But Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach her have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And what that means really is just in the sense of not being combative, not being argumentative or rebellious. And there are some who say that in the early church, uh, the women would sit on one side, the men on the other. And when the women heard something they didn't understand, they would yell across the way to their husband to explain it to them. And it was disruptive. And so they were told to be silent. So, um, but again, some people take it the wrong way. Some people become offended. Adam was formed first, writes Paul, and that's true. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But God doesn't just hold Eve accountable. He holds Adam accountable as well. We'll see that in just a moment. So God's original intention, as we spoke about a moment ago, was that man and woman would be co-regents over his creation. And the New Testament clearly states that in Christ there's neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. God is not gender-biased. But his original intention is that we would be co-regents over his creation. Eve's deception resulted in a God-ordained chain of command, if you will. And that's what this is all about, to keep order in a chaotic world. The curse plunged us into chaos. And so God had to establish a chain of command, just like you have a chain of command in the military, you have a chain of command in the workplace, that doesn't always mean the person at the top is the sharpest tool in the box, right? And so what happens is, if you happen to be work, working under that dull tool, you might get frustrated, you might get upset, you might, but in order for things to not fall into chaos and confusion, there has to be a chain of command, if you will. The important thing, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, is basically just remain wherever you were when you got saved. Wherever, and if God wants to move you, he will move you. And no matter what your level is within any particular chain, whether you're at the bottom of the food chain or the top of the food chain, if you're obedient to God, if you're a humble servant of the living God, he can use you right where you are. You don't have to have the title. You don't have to have the position. You don't have to be the top dog. All you have to be is obedient to God. And he will use you right where you're at. But so as to keep order in the world, God ordained a chain of command. Does this mean that God does not hold Adam accountable? Certainly not. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. And so even though God says Eve was the one who was deceived first, God ultimately holds Adam responsible because he should have been watching over his wife, protecting his wife, being her spiritual leader, and he failed. So as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Again, so through the male bloodline, through Adam, that sin nature was handed down to every human being. That's why Jesus could not have an earthly father. He had to have God as his father. 
that supernatural impregnation of Mary by God the Father, bypassing the sin nature handed down through the male bloodline. And this is. Now the whole world was cursed by the fall of Adam and Eve, but the ultimate manifestation is that of death for the human race, and that's God could not sit back and not deal with that. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, that's the curse, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Timothy 2.15, Nevertheless she, the woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Again, there's several understandings of what this means. She will be saved in childbearing. It may mean brought safely through childbirth, which we know for most women that's the case, although in earlier times the more infant mortality rate was much higher than it is today and even the, the mortality rate of the mother giving birth. But it may mean God's safety and protection through the birthing process. It could very well mean she will be saved in childbearing, speaking ultimately through the birth of a particular child with a big C, Jesus the Savior. Or it could mean that a woman's highest calling is found in her devotion to her divinely ordained role to help her husband bear children, to follow a faithful, chaste way of life. And I suppose it comes as no surprise that in light of these things, I don't know if there's been any area of our world, of our culture, of our society that's been under more attack than all the things that we've outlined here. One, gender. If you don't have two specific genders created and designated by God, and when the two come together, they're able to reproduce human beings who are created in the image of God. I thought about this, you know, in this time of year. If you remember what happened when Herod found out about the birth of Christ, it at some time had actually passed before the wise men actually showed up. And when Herod found out, he sent his soldiers to the town of Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys under three years of age. Do you remember that? Infanticide, genocide. And the devil's been doing that from the beginning of time. It happened at the time of Moses too, remember? When Pharaoh ordered the, the murder of all the Hebrew baby boys. One of the constants down through human history in this battle of good versus evil not left versus right, not Republican versus Democrat, but spiritual warfare has been genocide, infanticide, because Satan comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly. Amen. And so I know some people, some people, in fact, including a lot of people in the church, you've heard it more than once how we'll have visitors uh, that will come and talk about pro-life 
And they will tell me, they will tell you that we're one of the few churches in Albuquerque where they can actually come and speak. Most churches don't want to touch the subject. But this is at the very heart and the very core of the spiritual battle that's existed from the beginning of time. We have in our own state Samuel Alito's mother's satanic abortion clinic. They named it that to mock one of the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, Samuel Alito, who was one of the ones who helped overturn Roe versus Wade. Our satanic abortion clinic here in New Mexico has made national magazine covers, and it's been covered in a positive light, like it's a good thing. The reason I bring these things up, it's, it's just so obvious. As we talk about the curse and what the curse really means, I mean, it's manifesting itself right in front of us in the most blatant way possible. So you see how evil, demonic, and deceptive it is trying to erase the genders it's a mockery of God, folks, is what it is. When you are trying to erase male and female created he them, right? And he created us that way to be able to procreate. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth or fill the earth with boys and girls and men and women who would worship him, okay? And when you lie to people and tell them you have a right to kill the baby within your womb, that's a mockery of God. That is a blasphemy. And I can't think of any other time of year where it should be more obvious than right now as we're looking about the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. And thank God that the forces of darkness have not prevailed. Amen. The devil couldn't stop Jesus from coming. He tried. He tried big time. <clears throat> and so, again, the enemy's very, been very successful at denigrating, vilifying the role of Fatherhood, motherhood, the unborn. You see what's going on here? Most people view it at a very shallow, superficial level. But this is the spiritual dynamic of the universe, my friends. This is what's going on. Ladies, even though pain and childbearing is a curse from the fall, God has honored the female gender. Think about this, how it's been vilified and made to sound so bad, so negative. But God has actually honored the female gender by allowing them to be the sole human participants in the miraculous birth of Christ. 
And the pain in childbirth, the positive side, ladies, for most of you here, it's probably too late. You've already done that. You've already been through that part of your lives. But the pain is a reminder of the sufferings of Christ. And I try to do that whenever I'm going through some kind of a painful, physically painful situation. I think about how much Jesus suffered. And at least at this point in my life, I don't think I've even come close to what he has suffered. But it is a reminder that's a positive thing. We've already seen in Romans 5.12 how sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Therefore, no human male could have been involved in the process. Isaiah 7.14. As you can see, our go-to book today is Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. How's that possible? It's only possible with God. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Wait, I thought his name was Jesus. Well, he has many names, actually. The name Emmanuel means God with us, and it's fulfilled in Matthew. If you remember us talking about this in times past, Matthew's goal in his gospel was to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies. And so we read in Matthew 1, 21 through 23, She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, it's Joshua or Yehoshua, Yeshua, and it means God is our salvation. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, what we just read from Isaiah, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew gives us a translation, which is translated, God with us. God in human form. God incarnate. And that was Gabriel telling Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, that the child that's within her is from the Holy Spirit, it's from God, and this is what's going to happen. The end result of the birth of Christ, as we know, he grew up, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for our sins. On the third day, he rose from the dead. All this was for the specific purpose of freeing us from the curse. And I know over the years, I've heard various people at different times talk about how they think they're under some kind of a family curse, whether it might be divorce, like seems to be rampant in the family. Everybody goes through a divorce or what have you, different things, alcoholism, it's a family curse, what have you. But you need to know this. When you come to Christ, whatever curses you might have been under, they're broken. And you need to receive it, believe it, and walk in it. You are free from the curse in Christ. <clears throat> Most of all, you're free from the curse of death. Now, this body, this physical body, may have to go through the death process, although at some point the Bible makes it clear that the believers who are alive on the earth will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It could very well be us. But even if you do taste physical death, that gives way to eternal life. 
What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. Any curse you might think that you've been under, any family curse or what have you, is broken when you come to Christ. You have to receive it, you have to believe it. But even more than that, the curse of death is removed. We don't have to fear death anymore. To cap it off, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. He showed me, the angel showed John, the apostle John, John the revelator. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So we have the water of life, living water that Jesus promised. We have the tree of life. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him joyfully, gladly, willingly. They shall see his face. We talked about that earlier. God said, no man can see me and live. But there in eternity in paradise, they shall see his face and his name shall be upon their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. The light that right now, if you were to stand in the presence of God, he dwells in unapproachable light, you would be incinerated. But in eternity, in paradise, that light will be all around us at all times, no darkness. For the Lord God gives them light, and they, or we, because we'll be a part of this as believers, they shall reign forever and ever. Let's stand. As we prepare to go to the Lord in prayer, let's bow our heads. If you have a prayer request this morning, I'd like you to raise your hand, please, so we can include you in that prayer. The Father sees your hands, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for each one that's lifted their hand now, Lord, because you want us to reach out to you. You want us to call upon you. You love us. You want to have communication with us. And so now, Lord, I want to lift up those First of all, who may be struggling economically, Lord, this is a challenging time of year. We feel a great deal of pressure to be buying Christmas presents and so forth. And I pray that you'd take that pressure off right now, Lord. Yeah. That no one would be doing that out of compulsion, but only joyfully. Lord, your word says you, you, you love a cheerful giver. And so, Lord, help us. And help us to realize, recognize it's not the size of the gift, the cost of the gift, but it's what's in our hearts. And Lord, that we, we be reminded that we give the gifts in honor of you because you gave us the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray for those that are struggling, you would provide for their needs, you would encourage them, strengthen them, uplift them, and help them to totally trust in you, to keep their eyes on you, Lord, as Paul told us, we walk by faith, not by sight. And we pray, Lord, that we as the body of Christ would be able to be aware 
of one another's needs, to be able to help one another when and how and if we can, that we would uh, band together to make sure uh, that no one goes in need at this time of year or any other time of year. But Lord, just we pray for wisdom and guidance with our resources, that we would be faithful stewards over that which you've given us, and that as we do that, that you would, Lord, do your part, which you promised that you would take care of us, bless us, as we put you first in our lives, as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, I also lift up those who are um, having trouble with relationships, Lord, and we know again at, at stressful times of year like this time that we're in right now, that can put a strain on marriages, family relationships, friendships, in every area of our lives. So we ask that you would pour out that peace that we talked about today. Help us to receive that peace, to embrace that peace, to not allow fear, anxiety, worry, doubt to creep into our hearts and minds. But Lord, where it already has, we ask you to remove it. Just take it from us. Help us to uh, embrace that peace that passes all understanding, that you would uh, touch relationships that are strained, bring healing, restoration, especially at this time of year that no one would have to uh, celebrate the birth of Christ with turmoil, with strife, that you would just bring restoration of marriages and friendships and family relationships, Lord. And give us wisdom on how we can be part of the answer rather than part of the problem. And Lord, we pray for those with mental and emotional struggles, anxiety, depression. We know they're rampant in our world today. And as we talked about in the message, Father, we know that you are the supernatural counselor. Help us to seek your counsel, your wisdom, your guidance. We ask that you would heal those. Lord, you, Lord, you said you came to heal the brokenhearted. And Lord, that certainly applies where there's anxiety, where there's depression, broken hearts. We ask you to heal in Jesus' name and help us to receive that healing. And Lord, then finally we pray for those with physical afflictions. Lord, that you would touch them, heal them. Help us again to impart to us that faith that we need to trust you for health and strength. Lord, we just pray that you would pour out your healing upon those struggling with various illnesses, diseases, injuries. Lord, we give them all to you. And again, we acknowledge that the suffering you endured far surpasses most of what we go through in this life. Maybe not all, but an awful lot of it. We can't hardly even imagine the suffering that you endured for us. And so help us, Lord, when we do have to suffer, to endure it joyfully because we are, uh, as those uh, men who came to, to um, Paul, I think it was, said, uh, he told them that to enter into the fellowship of your sufferings, Lord. Help us to do that as well, to rejoice no matter what situation we find ourselves in. We thank you, we praise you for this time of year that we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask you to receive our final offering of praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.